Hello, you listener of Overcoming Your Story podcast. I hope you're doing well. I hope the beginning of the year 2022 for you has been great. Um, as for me, I didn't post any podcast episode last week because I've been battling COVID. I managed to escape COVID until my third daughter, who is two, went to daycare and brought COVID to the family. We were all sick, and um, but the babies recovered quite quickly. Me and my husband, we recovered too, but we have this lingering cough and uh, my voice is cracked and um, changing. I have like <laughs> fluctuating voice and I have uh, a cough still, but um, hopefully it will go away soon. So today again is another guest episode where I'm a guest on someone's podcast. And uh, this episode is uh, very special to me because uh, it's I, I recorded it with my friend, Rosie Young who is the host of the Changing Lenses podcast. Rosie and I used to be colleagues. We met at work and we became um, friends. She's so compassionate and I really enjoyed having the conversation with her. So Rosie is an entrepreneur and um, she's really about dismantling systemic inequity. And... um, and also helping people without privilege uh, survive uh, um, systems that are oppressive to them. So she's a speaker, she's a coach, she's a podcaster for justice, equity, decolonization, and inclusion. She's based in uh, Toronto, and uh, she's really doing great work. She totally changed what she her career path to start doing this, uh, to start doing this Jedi work. So. Yeah, you hear from the conversation. So we talk about, again, it's me sharing my story, but from with emphasis on different aspects, on racism, on my life in Switzerland, and uh, how it shaped me, how things looked like from the outside, where I really looked like I was thriving with all my achievements, and how I lived things on the inside. I think it's really very important to talk about these things because some people, they just look like they have it all together. They just go from achievement to achievement and everybody's just cheering for them. Everybody expects them to just always be doing well because they've always done well. They, everybody's just so proud of them. And then they don't know that sometimes these people, they feel hollow, they feel empty inside. And that's what I was going through. And I know there are many people like that and they don't feel good enough and they, they really suffer. And then the achievements, they come at a really big price. And um, from the, and they, they don't let it show because they are ashamed or they, they, they're afraid of disappointing. They are people pleasers. They want to make everyone happy. So, but at one point, like, I think the balance comes from like really accepting who we are you know, the balance comes from really accepting who we are and um, accepting our feelings, accepting our limitations and rejecting perfectionism and the need to perform for others. So yeah, I hope you get something out of this episode. And uh, I'm still waiting to hear from you listeners out there because I don't know who is listening Even though I see the numbers, I know that um, people are listening to this podcast. So if you could reach out to me, um, I created an email called overcomingyourstory at gmail.com. So if you write there, I will get it and then I will reply to you. So if you feel like reaching out, reach out. And again, 
Share this podcast with your friends if you find that it could be helpful to someone. And um, enjoy this episode. Bye for now. No one believed me when I said I wanted to go to university. They laughed, you know. They said, you cannot come from Africa and go to university. Your own family. Yeah, my white side of the family. I missed Cameroon terribly in Switzerland, even though my life was horrible in Cameroon. But I had made such great friends who had supported me. I knew myself because my color didn't matter. Welcome to Changing Lenses. You're invited to step into the lives of people on the front lines of discrimination, racism, and exclusion, to see the world through their eyes, and to hear their personal story of their fight for social justice. I'm your host, Rosie Young, a Chinese-Canadian immigrant, cis-straight female with invisible disabilities, and I am passionate about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Do you also want to see social change happen? Then please join me in Changing Lenses. Each episode is hosted on colonized land that was taken from many indigenous nations, including the Anishinaabe, the Huron-Wendat, and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. I seek truth and reconciliation with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people of Turtle Island. And I call upon us all to decolonize our thinking, not just our system. Now please enjoy the episode. Hello, Miriam. Welcome. It's so good to see you. I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you today. Hi, Rosie. Thank you for inviting me. It's such a great pleasure. We've been planning this, right? Yes, we have. Yes, I'm super excited. Um, and and before we actually get into it too, because I know some of the topics we'll talk about today are pretty sensitive. So before we really get going, I want you to know that this is a safe and comfortable space. I want you to feel safe and comfortable and to be able to be honest and real and vulnerable in our conversations. So I commit to you and our listeners that this is a safe space and I invite you to keep me accountable uh, to being respectful and non-judgmental, and to definitely let me know if I say or pronounce anything incorrectly. Thank you for that invitation. Um, I know it is because I've had other interactions with you, but thank mm. you. Okay. Thanks, Miriam. So Miriam, I just want to dive right in because there's so much I want to talk about uh, in your story. Um, and first off, I really love the fact that you say in your self-described bio that you um, are an African. Uh, and you mentioned that before you even say you're a mother. I don't know if that was intentional or anything, but I, what, what does that mean to you to be an African? Um, I think it's the major part of my identity. Um, I was born in Cameroon where I grew up for 13 years before moving to Switzerland. And uh, I define myself first as an African, um, not necessarily as a Cameroonian, but as an African uh, in a whole, because I think we all come from somewhere, and um, Africa is my home. Africa shaped me. Africa gave me my values. Africa showed me that my did not define me by my skin, so it my skin color. So I am so grateful for that because I think I have a step back when it comes to when when other people try to define me. And I know of a time when my skin color never defined me. And I'm grateful to Africa for that. Wow, that's awesome. Thank you. So, I mean, you, 
I've had the pleasure of actually visiting a few countries in Africa when we both work together, right? And the same organization. Um, and I am kind of ashamed to admit that I definitely had stereotypes and certain ideas before I went to Africa and realized uh, that it's not how it's portrayed in movies. I won't say anything more because I'm curious what you've experienced in terms of common myths, either against yourself or against Africa in general, that you encountered when you went to Europe and North America, especially from white people. Yes. So um, growing up in Cameroon, my life was very difficult. I had a very, very difficult childhood, but there were two things. So there was my personal history, my personal story, and my family story, and the story of like being Black. So in Cameroon, I never had a problem with my skin color. I still don't have. <laughs> and because everyone, it, that was not the most defining thing. It was being honest, working hard, trying your best. Those were the, like just being a human being. And for me, when I moved to Europe, I stopped being a human being and I became a black person or a black woman or a black girl. I was a teenager. And that didn't come with positive stereotypes. I wouldn't have minded if it was maybe just to label me and it didn't have consequences. What I noticed straight up at school was that they wouldn't, for example, give me a test to, to see my level of education because they assume that I come from Africa. It's, uh, it's all kids. They told me kids who come from Africa, they don't go to school. So they know. So even in my, um, I was totally uh, confused. So I was speaking English in Cameroon. I came to Switzerland. I was speak I had to learn French. But I, for me, it, it didn't mean I, I became stupid. I still had knowledge, but just in one language and not in the other. I just had to translate the knowledge into another language. So for me, I didn't see, I, I just thought it was a matter of time before I knew the language and then I translated the knowledge. But I was not given that opportunity. My teachers, they kept putting me, they wanted me to do an apprenticeship. And I, I knew coming from my childhood trauma that the only thing I had going for me was school. School was the most defining thing in my life. I come from a family where people cannot read and write. And because my uncle forced me where at one point to, to every evening I had to sit with my book open on my lap and look into that book. I, I couldn't speak unless I was spoken to. So sitting there with the book, at first I was bored, and then I started reading in this book, and I got better and better at school. So when things were not falling apart, crumbling around me, I had school for me. It was what defined me. And I come to Switzerland, they tried to take that from me. So for three years, I went to every single school in my little town where I immigrated to, because they would put me in a level like people who would do an apprenticeship, my grade would be so high that they would change levels. And I did that for three years. And I came to a class where the, 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 the people had been doing the same, um, I don't know if they were in um, Italian, they had been doing Italian for four years or in math science, they had been doing it for four years. And they were in their last year and they had to take an exam to go to high school. So I arrived in, in the, that last year and my teachers, they said, it cannot be done. It's not possible. You cannot do it. You cannot catch up with four years of, of studies. I'm like, you don't know. I will try. They, so so after Miriam, two, Miriam, sorry, when you arrived in Switzerland, you were in the last year of high school? 
No, I was not even in high school yet. I was still in secondary school. And okay. in secondary school, mind you, they already knew that I could not do it. It's really, for me, it's it's crazy because um, they, they had determined already at 11 years of age which kids could go to university and which kids could not go. For having been through all the system, all the immigrant kids, they were bonded in the in the path that led them to working in stores and doing apprenticeship. No, working in stores. And then the next level were people who would go to technical school and do an apprenticeship. So I, I was with the, those people too. You had Swiss and immigrant kids there. And the last level where I came in the last year, it was only children of bankers, lawyers, doctors, you know, all mm. the all the, the professionals. Yeah, professionals in the in that city who knew the value of education their kids were. And I, I was thinking, wow, at 11 years of age, if you're not lucky as an immigrant that your your parents can advocate for you because they don't understand the system, where well, you're lost already, actually, because you're already streamed into a path that will block you later from going to university. Wow. So... Uh... I mean, I've we hear we've heard some of that in the media here in North America now. Like the stories, people who have black skin have experienced this their whole lives through generations. But we're just starting to hear this now as a white society. I think that is coming out. But it's and it's it's very telling that it's not just North American. That in which city was it in Switzerland that you immigrated to? So I immigrated to a small town called Yverdon-les-Bains near Lausanne. Mm, yeah, okay. yeah, mm. where I lived for 10 years. And uh, so, but it was just not being seen. I knew that I was not seen as, Miriam was not seen. It's the black girl who, the blackness was seen. And I was defined by that all-encompassing blackness. And they couldn't see Miriam who liked school in Cameroon who in a class of 100 was like the, the best student or the second best student. No one wanted to hear that. They knew that people from Africa don't go to school. And they mm. actually told me that. So it made me very rebellious. And I was out to prove something. I was really, I was obsessed. I was working around the clock. I wanted to prove to them they were wrong. And uh, I think it shouldn't have been like that. But um, in that year before going to high school, I actually passed, I was actually the second best student in my class, even though I was learning French, German, math and everything. Yeah, I, I, and my, te my teachers, they apologized to me. They said uh, they never knew it was possible. Um, and uh, at the time, I didn't realize the violence because you have to see that my teachers for three months when I came to that um, level with the rich kids and everything, every Monday, when people were going out for recess, my teacher told me to stay back. And she would ask me, do you want to go back to level the level you were in before? You know, I would tell her, no, I don't want to go back because they kept putting pressure on me that I would fail. I was not in my place. I should go back to the level before. And I refused. And at the end of the year, I was the second best student. So I, I, I caught up with everything and I passed my exam to go to high school. And in high school, I, it was, it, I started at the beginning. I was not catching up. <laughs> because oh in the, Yeah. That's but amazing. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> yeah. Thank so you. So I'm just thinking about, because um, for our, our North American listeners, they may not be familiar with the schooling system. So when you say secondary school, how old were you uh, when you went to Switzerland and started schooling there? 
13 years old. Okay. So 13. Yeah. So in North America, that would be our, our grade eight going mm-hmm. in, starting to go into high school, right? Yeah. And when you say, I didn't realize at first when you said the level. So physically, uh, the classes were separated with basically like the rich kids that were going to be the bankers versus yeah, yeah. who the teachers thought would be the dumb kids that would just not have a great career. Physically, you're actually, wow. Yeah. And I went to, I visited everyone because they put me with the kids who would like stop school. And, and there you found all the immigrant kids. It was just maybe one or two Swiss kids, but all the immigrant kids were there. And the, the middle level where you could go to technical school or do an apprenticeship, there it was a mix. And actually that class was a great class for me because I felt very comfortable. Um, the teacher was really good. My classmates were amazing. At the end of the year, I was like building friendships, you know. But um, I had an obsession. I wanted to go to university. Um, I didn't know what I would study, but it was too important for me. It's as if going to university would give me the value my parents didn't give me, you know. Yeah. So. So can we talk a bit about what it was like for you growing up in Cameroon. I feel like I almost started at the wrong end, but I was just so fascinated by that African identity that you brought with you to Switzerland. Um, First of all, where in, and this is also what I think I want people to dispel the myth that first first of all, Africa is just not one big uniform place where everybody's the same. It's made up of many, many different countries, very different cultures. And so Cameroon, the country, where, uh, what city were you in in Cameroon? So um, I, I was born in uh, West Cameroon, in uh, Northwest Cameroon, but I grew up in many different places. And even in Cameroon, it's very diverse. Um, mm. Even my story, I wouldn't say it's all over Cameroon like that or how my personal mm. story played out mm. because I grew up seeing kids who had good parents who were taken care of. I was there, <laughs> envious of them. I wanted to be in their shoes, right? So, and that was in Cameroon. So but um, um, my mother was married very young, at 14, to a man who was a polygamist in, a, in, a, in our village. Um, and um, so she didn't know it was her marriage. They forced her into marriage, I would say. And she had a first daughter that she lost at eight months of age. And then she had me. And in that context, there was a lot of pressure on her because a woman who didn't have children um, it was as if it was the worst thing, you know. And um, so they were putting a lot of pressure on her. So I came into the world not as a, I was awaited, but I had a purpose. I had a, I was a tool. I had, you know, I would free my mother from all that pressure. So um, I would say that's why I'm very anxious today because I'm sure it was not fun for her. So when my mother had my sister, she ran away. She took us and she ran away with us. And then um, she left us with our great-grandmother. So um, my mother was not raised by her parents. She was raised by her grandparents. Her mother was raised by other people. So there's this cycle of not raising children in my family. And that, that causes so much trauma in that you don't have, there's always this doubt of your identity, of if you're connected if you're accepted, of your worth. You always kind of struggle with your worth, right? So um, so we grew up for many years, five, six years, with our great-grandmother in the village, in my mother's village, because they didn't come from the same village. And uh, 
my father was not a Muslim because people say, no, my father was, it's because he was a prince and he had businesses, he had money. So he was marrying every young girl he saw. He had, it's, it's a matter of power, patriarchy, right? Sorry, he, he was literally a prince? Like he was, that yeah. was he had the title of prince? Mm-hmm. Yeah. His, his father was uh, the king of uh, our village and his brother became king. And so he was the prince. And um, back then when he left the palace to go settle as a young man, he was gifted three wives already. So when my mother ran away, um, my father had 18 wives at the time living oh in his goodness. compound. Yeah. And were they all also really young, like as young as your mother? Yes. Yes. Or even younger. And when uh, were your grandmother and your great grandmother, were they also really young when they got married and started yes. having kids? Yes. I see. Yes. And so my, wow. my cousins to my, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so not as an excuse, but I could see why like a 14 year old or 15 year old is not ready to be a mother. So, and even your great grandmother would have been maybe 40 something, right? At the time that she was raised, she almost in a way you could say she was almost the only mature person, hopefully mature to be able to raise kids. But that doesn't take away from the fact that your mother wasn't your mother as a child. Yeah. I always have this saying in my head that a child cannot be a mother. And that's what my mother was. She was a child and she was overwhelmed. She, the day she was married off, she was in school that day. So she was in what we call here in North America, elementary school. We call it primary school in Cameroon. So she mm-hmm. was in her last year and the police came to school calling her name and she came out. Uh, her younger brother was in school. He came out too. And then the, they, they said she had to come. So she she went on foot with her brother. And on the way, <laughs> they stopped and they baptized her because my father was Christian, Baptist Christian. So they baptized her in a small stream and changed her name because she's Muslim, my mother. My, that, my, my maternal part of the family is Muslim. And they changed her name to Amster, from Amsetu to Amster. And they took her to my father's compound. And there were people there ready to start a ceremony. When she arrived, they put a cloth on her head, as is our tradition. And they started the ulule, and they started a ceremony. And actually, she was married. So her grandparents had negotiated a bride price with my father, but she didn't know anything about it. So they took her from school, and they married her on the spot. And I think that in itself, I mean, how can you... Yeah, <laughs> it was a recipe for disaster, I would say. So yeah, we grew up changing a lot. So from when, from my great-grandmother, we we were raised also, I was raised by an uncle, by another uncle, and then three years with an alcoholic woman before moving to Switzerland. And before moving, I, w- I didn't want to move anymore because through all of this, the hope was that my mother would come and take me one day. She never came. She visited, and it was really painful because she came and went, but she never came and took us. So by the time she wanted to take us, I had I had been my own caregiver for years. I had been cooking. The, the woman, the last woman she left us with in Cameroon, the, the, the alcoholic woman, there I was cooking for 10 people, 
selling in her, she had a bar, selling in her bar, uh, you know, um, um, quarreling of <laughs> with her cost, drunken customers, you know. Um, you know, more than a full life, I would say. So I didn't want to go. I didn't want any new surprises. So I told my mother, please rent a room for me in Cameroon and let me go to school. That's the only thing I want. I want to go to school. Wow, I'm so sorry, Miriam, that you went through that as a kid. Um, and, and to the extent that you feel comfortable, because I know right now that's part of your really brave and important work is helping others and helping yourself to continue that process of healing from your childhood and what you went through. Um, you already you already have talked a lot about it, but what um, can you tell us a little bit more about the experiences as a child? Like what what it was, I guess, maybe what is most memorable to you that informed your desire for education and even a bit the person who you are today? Um, hmm. My desire for education, um, you know, when at three and a half years old, all of a sudden you don't have, you lose, you don't lose them. Not that they die, but you lose your mom and dad. You're placed with your great grandmother. You had not seen until that day because I hadn't seen her. She was, she was very old. <laughs> she was like 90 years old or around. She was very old. She had white hair. She couldn't, she walked with a walking stick and she was bent and she walked very slowly. So she was in no state to be taking care of small kids. And in all of that, no one ever explained to me what was happening. I was just thrown in situations like a whirlwind and you're trying to understand by yourself and making truths. Kids, we have to, kids have to have a mirror, parents, caregivers that reassure them. I didn't have that. And um, I think the only thing that I hung on to was my great-grandmother. She was very, very loving. She was very loving. I was very rebellious. Um, she beat me a lot because I was always escaping into the forest, but and she was scared. Um, but at the same time, I really felt loved. And thank God, because after that period, it was all, um, yeah, it was chaos. It was chaos. And uh, the school thing, I didn't, at first, I didn't want to go to school. I learned to read way after other people had started reading. I was I was angry. I was an angry small child of five, six. And um, at six years old, I was already, um, I was almost raped by a neighbor. Um, sorry to just say that. Yeah, because my grandmother was, she sold foodstuff in the market. So when I came home from school, I was by myself because she would be in the market with my sister. So she asked this neighbor, who was also there in the afternoon, if he could watch me. So I would be playing in the yard. He would just keep an eye to see that I was still there and stuff. And one day he decided to, he tried to rape me. And so from that time, every day after school, I went into the forest instead because the forest was safe. The forest accepted me. The forest did not insult me. I didn't have parents like other kids did. The forest did not try to harm me. So I think that love of the forest, it's its its so um, strong in the way I build myself, you know, nature, greenness, trees, leaves. It was, for me, it's, uh, even t when I talk about it, I have goosebumps, you know, the forest is something, it, it built me, it gave me, it made me feel calm. 
And so from my great-grandmother, um, since I was not doing well in school, that's why they sent me to my uncle. And um, at my uncle's, he, he was very abusive physically, um, very strict. And um, so I had to sit there every evening when I had finished my chores with my book, my school books on my lap. He couldn't read and write. And from there, I started reading. At first, I was bored. I was in my mind. I was uh, <laughs> rebelling in my mind. I, I don't want to be here. Right. But since I had no choice, I started reading the books. And I saw that the more I read, the better my grades got in school. So it became the only thing I did well because there was no reflection. I was a good person from my environment. No mm -hmm. one told me, you're a good kid. You, no one, I had, I did not have any sense of self from a caregiver giving me that identity that Miriam, you're this or you're that. I did not, I didn't have time to experiment, play, even know what color I like. I didn't have time for that. I was in chores and yeah. So school was the only kind of thing that I did by myself. No one intervened and it worked out. So that's why my identity was so tied to school. Wow. I can completely see that. So your grand, your great-grandmother didn't know how to read or write either? No. All the adults that you lived with, none of them could read or write. Even your no. father, the prince. could He, did, he, he could read, read and write, but I only lived in his compound for when, until I was three and a half. But he, he could, yeah. Right. But he obviously didn't bother trying to teach you how to do that. Well, um <laughs> My father had 18 wives, and uh, right. when he died in 2005, he left behind 76 children. So I don't think with 76 children, even if you could teach, <laughs> I don't know how you could do that, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Wow, my uh, my mouth is hanging open. Okay. Yeah, um, and uh, it's not a Cameroonian thing. Even Cameroonians are shocked by this now. <laughs> so, okay. Because people always say, oh, but maybe that's how it is in Cameroon. I'm like, no. Because he was a prince, he had power, he had money. It was just like, you know, he would see a young girl and then he had to marry that young girl. That's how. Uh, and I'm yeah. kind of going off topic, but I keep, I'm still thinking about how your mother was basically kidnapped and forced to marry him. Mm. And even her, her religion was stripped away. Like with the rest of your family, they were all Muslim or would you call yourself a Muslim? I was raised um, part a Muslim. Uh, the, the, all the years I lived with my grand, uh, my great grandmother, and my uncle. So for maybe eight years, I was raised as a Muslim. And um, at one, when I was at the with the alcoholic woman, I had heard news that my father was a Christian, a Baptist. So I decided to become a Baptist because this woman was a Baptist. So I started going to church. Um, and those three years going to church was so, so helpful because I didn't have anything to hang on to. And uh, church gave me comfort. You know, the Bible gave me comfort. Um, I lost that at one point because um, when I came to Switzerland, my mother was married to a white Swiss man and he, it was forbidden to go to church. So I just fell off the bandwagon of going to church. Yeah. Sorry, your mother was married to a white Swiss man. That's why you immigrated to Switzerland, was yes. to go with them. So your mother yes. did come back for you, I guess? Um, no. So when my mom left uh, for Europe, she first went to Spain. 
And she left us with this alcoholic woman. So at that point, she had decided that her family were not treating us well and she would leave us with a friend's mom. And But she didn't do her due diligence because this woman was an alcoholic. Um, she didn't come back to take us, but from Spain, she went to Switzerland. And there she met a Swiss man. They married. And then, so she, because all this time she was undocumented from Spain to Switzerland, she was undocumented. So when she married this Swiss, Swiss man, she became, she, she had documents. And uh, six months after they married, we came to Switzerland. So, um, so, but three years had passed um, the whole time between Spain and Switzerland. She had been gone for three years. So, but the whole time in Cameroon, my mom was involved in my childhood uh, in that she came and visited us every nine months, I would say. She would come and visit, but she always left after five days. Um, so reuniting in Switzerland, she left small kids and now she has teenagers, very angry teenagers, you know, my sister and I. And um, actually there was no space to process what had happened to us in that she had told many different stories to her husband and we soon realized that by telling our truth, we were going to jeopardize the union she had built on, you know, on a basis we don't know because we were not there. So we were again left with our stories locked in us, the pain, the confusion, there was no space to process. And I was just really very angry. And um, yeah, then all the racism, also racism in the in the family. Um, not ra- I wouldn't say, I would say prejudice, not racism, in that no one believed me when I said I wanted to go to university. They laughed, you know. They say you cannot come from Africa and go to university. And uh, in your own family, yeah, my my white side of the family. Of, um, so your my, mother's husband was white. The Swiss man was white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was a white man, a white Swiss man. Um, even him, like many, the cultural difference was uh, huge. So as a, as a parentified traumatized child, I took on this role of a peacekeeper, you know, translating to my Swiss dad, this is what my mom said, this is what. So it was not, in all of this, there was no space for me to be, to be me, or I did not even know how to be a child anymore when I came to Switzerland. I knew how to clean, cook, sell in a bar, like just be busy and then go to school. That's that's what I had done for years, you know, for years. So I didn't know, I, even when when my <laughs> classmates, they were buying like magazines to read in, like um, Jeune et Jolie, it's like a teen vogue kind of thing. I didn't understand why they were buying it. I would go, but what is in there? But what <laughs> I didn't understand. Oh my goodness. Jeune et Julie, young and pretty. Really? Yes. Mm-hmm. Jeune et Julie, exactly. Did you feel Jeune et Julie? <laughs> not at all. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't feel, I did not even know who I was. I was just so confused. I missed Cameroon terribly in Switzerland, even though my life was horrible in Cameroon, but I had made such great friends who had supported me. And um, and actually, I felt myself in Cameroon. I felt I knew myself. Um, 
because my color didn't matter. The fact that our oh, racism, like I discovered racism in Switzerland. In, I don't know, I was naive in Cameroon. I just thought, oh, um, the, the, we had the civil rights movement and the civil rights movement and then apartheid, you know. And I thought it was all over. It was in the past. We had understood. And then I come to Switzerland and I realized through watching movies, the color purple, I was horrified. I was horrified that racism still existed and the extent of it. So, yeah, I begged my mom to send me back. Of course, she wouldn't send me back to Cameroon. <laughs> so, um So yeah. you wanted to, the did you... <laughs> Why Why did you want to go back to Cameroon so badly? I felt um, my, with my Swiss dad, it was, not, it was not a good situation. He was sexually molesting us. We had a mom we didn't connect to, and there was racism. So I was feeling, at this point, I can be my own boss because I know how to take care of myself. I've been a mom to my sister for years, like really a mom, you know, supporting her, cooking for her, doing her, helping her with her homework, like everything, like a mom. I'm like, I could just go back, rent somewhere to stay and go to school because that's what I'm interested in. And I didn't have any interest. So, you know, I, I'm like, maybe I'll be in a context where I feel comfortable and then I go to school and then I try to build myself that way. Um, but what it's, that's why ignorance is really... Uh, something terrible because at that point I think we needed intense trauma therapy mm-hmm. <laughs> you know my sister and I we needed to and we saw doctors we they updated our vaccines no one saw anything because we like we were so quiet so polite so you know so no one saw anything no one saw anything we saw doctors several times you know getting checks that everything was fine health wise and no one asked so, you know. You were so quiet and so polite. Mm-hmm. I, I think you also described when you were a child in Cameroon that you're a bit rebellious. Like your grandmother would sometimes feel like she needed to beat you because she was afraid for you and how you're... Where do you... So did you think... Was that a change coming from Cameroon to Switzerland? Did you become so quiet, so polite? I became quiet when I spent two years with my uncle and he wouldn't let me speak. And uh, the slightest thing I did, he would beat the hell out of me. So I became only rebellious in my mind, you know. Yeah. So I wouldn't agree, but I knew I did not have any space to express it. So, yeah, that's really toxic stress because one is angry inside, you know, and thinking things. There's no one to even help you process and see that maybe it's not really the truth because you're still a child, actually. So you, you take things in and then you say, oh, it's because it's me that I'm treated like this. That's what I deserve, you know, because there's no one to mirror to you that that's not what you deserve. And actually from when I left my uncle and I lived with this alcoholic woman, I was relieved at first that she was not beating us. She was only insulting us. But the truth is with time, the, the 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 verbal abuse is worse because that that critical voice that harsh tone gets internalized and that's what 
I used to speak to myself for many, many years. It's not totally gone. It's still there. You know, I'm trying to, it's less than before. I can talk about it, you know, all the shame and guilt. Yeah. So that critical voice became my voice. Even I tried to fight it because I, when she would say, you're a church rat, you're a bastard. In my mind, I would tell myself, I'm not a bastard. I'm not a church rat. I'm a good person. I, I do good at school. I go to church. I work hard, you know, but it was not enough. I needed another adult to, to actually mirror to me that I was a good person or even just hug me, you know. And uh, yeah. And so three years like that, it's, it's, um, it's, I think it's too much because with um, with time, I saw that the effect of that is very long lasting. And I would always give this message as uh, that we should take care of what we tell children. You know, we should take care of what, how we shape them, the kind of things we tell them. Um, we shouldn't project our stress onto children and and be flustered and say uh, mean things to them and uh, let them sit with that because that builds them. That's the voice that we hear. They, they will believe you. You are the adult and then you tell them these mean things. What I mean, well, what else? They don't have any other reference, you know? And uh, But um, all this to say that uh, I tell this story to also raise awareness because we cannot... We cannot uh, heal from what we don't know. If we don't realize it's trauma, we cannot heal from it. And me, for many years, I, I fought, I ran, I did everything to run away from my traumas, and they caught up with me. You know, they caught up with me. And uh, and when I realized it was trauma, because I just, I, just, I would tell myself, um, stop the self-pity, uh, you had a hard life, so so do many people. Many people had a hard life. Just get going. You're lazy. All these words, you know, all these harsh words. No, no uh, compassion or empathy, you know. But it's not. It's not. Uh, it's really. It's really terrible. It's like a a double tax, you know. You went through a lot of hurt, and then now there's no one there, but you're hurting yourself because people have programmed you to hurt yourself, actually. So. Miriam, I just want to acknowledge again, um, just your courage in speaking so openly and giving of yourself to other people so that they don't have to wait as long as you did to get healing. So thank you for that. Uh, I wonder, because I, I, I see that like you said, the words, what's that old saying? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Mm-hmm. It's not true. Not true. <laughs> and the words we can, can leave... strike all of that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's even harder because, like you said, you could go to the doctor. Your doctors didn't see anything, uh, or or were blind to things that could have helped you. But even uh, with physical beatings, there would be bruises and scars that people could see. With the all the other things that you went through, including the sexual abuse, including the verbal abuse, alcoholic abuse those leave invisible scars and pains, wounds, but they're very real, very deep. How do you think that that affected you later? Like, how did you see now looking back, how did you see that some of those traumas uh, affected how you behaved or thought as an adult? Hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's a very <laughs> powerful question. Um, I think it came first from the shame of the life I lived, 
just shame of saying this is like I couldn't answer simple questions from I don't know university mates when someone would say oh um is your father still in Cameroon I wouldn't answer that um how many siblings do you have I don't want to say I have 75 siblings no so at one point I found a parade with that question I would say my mother had two daughters <laughs> you know that that was it <laughs> because for example, I went my did my bachelor's at the University of Geneva, where the kids who came there, not kids, the these other students, their parents were lawyers, bankers. Some of them wore like um brands to school, Louboutin shoes, you know. Okay, I was super broke. I didn't have money even to buy myself a sandwich. But how do I start telling this person where I come from? How do I, I, I didn't have the words at the time. I was just so ashamed. I was ashamed someone would meet my mother and they, they, they didn't speak perfect French. I was so ashamed of that. So I wouldn't let my mother come to anything when that concerned my, my studies, where I was with my friends. Um, I would try to avoid inviting people to my, to my apartment where I lived with my mother and things like that. So yeah, the shame the shame and the guilt, you know, like just this feeling that I was broken, that uh, I was broken and I was fighting it with all the life I had it be. I was like, no, but you cannot be worthless if you if you manage to have a bachelor's degree. Look at you. You know, I was trying, but yeah, no, it was. Um, and after my bachelor's, I, I had a scholarship or several scholarships to go do my master's at the London School of Economics. And that's where things started crumbling for me because this sense of um, inadequacy of not fitting in was even stronger because these were like kids from, some of them were came from really uh, um, extraordinary backgrounds. Uh, I, I just felt I couldn't tell my story. So I had um, a, a Polish version. I would tell people not to alarm them because I was afraid of pity. I felt if I told my story, people would pity me. And that that was worse than, I don't know, that was the worst thing for me, the, the feeling. I'm like, I don't want to say, tell anyone this happened to me and they'll pity me. I didn't want pity. But what I didn't know at the time was that I could also have maybe compassion, you know, empathy. I didn't know about that. I only saw pity and uh, I didn't want that. So... I would say a light version of, yeah, I grew up in Cameroon, then I came to Switzerland, then I went to school, and then I had my bachelor's from the University of Geneva, and then I got accepted into the London School of Economics, and then I got a scholarship, and here I am. <laughs> right? Everything's good. Like you, yeah, have, And right? it's like you had the same history as other rich kids or kids who didn't have a traumatic background. Yeah. So I, I canceled all the trauma from, from my narrative of myself. And, um, but some people, I think they were still very curious because some classmates would say, oh, we realized that you must be the daughter of a diplomat in Geneva. That's why you came from there to come and do your master's at the London School of Economics. I would laugh and say, haha, no, that's not it. But I, I wouldn't say more. I would just say, no, that's not the story, you know? Yeah. Do you think that they thought of you as a diplomat because you weren't white? Like that that would be the only way that you would have come from Geneva? Um, 
I think it's tied to that. And at the time, I I um I took a lot of time polishing myself. If you saw, me, I didn't look like my trauma. I didn't look like my past. I looked. I had the, I put fake hair because I I at the time or or black girls I wouldn't like show my natural hair like I'm showing it right now speaking to you. So I had this long flowy hair I had all the time that I would brush. I put makeup, not too much, but I put makeup. I was very very um, slim. I I did I kept myself like that on purpose, and uh, I always dressed nicely even if it's to go buy a baguette. Uh, opposite my building, I would I would take one hour to dress myself. It was a way of hiding my traumas, hiding, putting a shield so that no one would see what was behind. Um, and most I I read this book in school, high school called um, "The Picture of Dorian Gray" by Oscar Wilde. I felt like Dorian Gray, that I looked good in society, but behind because Dorian Gray was someone was good in society. He was very handsome. Women liked him. And then behind there was this ugly side. There was this picture of him that was rotting. That I, I really felt like that. I, I felt like I was fake. I, I had this perfect image I was projecting to the world. What I thought the world could handle from me. And then behind there was this story that was so painful that was turning in me, that wanted to come out, but I didn't know how to let it out. So that's how I lived in my 20s, you know, when I graduated university. Starting work was another, yeah, that was a transition that was not easy. (laughs) And we're going to talk about that. (laughs) We are going to talk about that. Yes, there's so much here that I think we definitely need a, a part two. So uh, we'll save that for part two because I think there's there's going to be a ton there too. Um, Miriam, I'm just I really relate to everything you said about hiding and everything looks good on the surface, but people so people on the outside look at you. They just by the time you got to London School of Economics, I bet they just saw a bright, beautiful, successful young woman. In their minds, white people probably thought, oh, she beat the odds. She left that poor place of Africa and um, she's one of the few black people who could do this or whatever. They thought All they thought was somebody successful and they never uh, bothered to find out beneath or you, you wouldn't let them also because of your trauma. I'm wondering for, I mean, things have come some ways around even mental health and how supportive people want to be or are more aware that there's stuff below the surface that we don't know. Because it's not safe for people who have experienced trauma, they're not going to just tell people this, right? But as a person uh, who wants to be compassionate um, and maybe is just not aware, in for friends and family of people who may have experienced trauma, what are some signs maybe that they could see that they could, or how could they, yeah. Do you have any advice for people who want to be supportive, Um to people that in their to people they care about who've experienced trauma. Yeah, so if you have, um, I would say, if you have that friend who always, you know, they never show anything, always so polite, they always have the right thing to say, but something that wouldn't actually betray their real feeling about something, um, or who are very calm, 
you know, very, very put together, very, I don't know. I just felt as if I never really shared my real opinions. I shared what I thought would be acceptable in the moment. But I think if someone looked a bit closely, even my story, <laughs> there's one person at LSE I told my story to, and from the get-go he told me, uh, there's something with your story. It doesn't, uh, how do you say it? It doesn't add up. I was like, I was so upset. I said, how can you say it doesn't add up? It's my story. I know my story. What he meant was that what I'm saying, there's, there's way more to the story than what I'm telling him. And that person, he saw it from the get-go. And uh, at first I was very upset at him. But he made the effort to build a bit of rapport with me and build a bit of trust. And he's the first person I told my whole story to. My And today I, I will always be grateful to him because I think until then, I didn't feel as if I could tell somebody else the whole story. I told him the real story. And uh, it was so funny because we were sitting in our student rooms and I was telling him. And at the end, he was carrying me like a small child. He was this tall guy. <laughs> From Denmark. <laughs> he was he was carrying, I was sitting on his lap and then with my head on his. And I've never, I'd never to that point had that someone with whom I felt so safe that I really opened up. And I think from there, I knew it was possible to trust, not everybody, but to find people I could, I could trust. So I would say um, patience, um, patience, building trust, because that's the thing with trauma, traumatized people, they, I lack trust. I lacked, uh, sometimes I still lack trust in the world. Um, I love the human being, but I also know that the human being can be very cruel. So um, yeah, patience. I would say if you have that friend or that family member, you never know what they think. They never dare show how they feel. They're always trying to be, even sometimes we can feel they're not okay, but they will tell you they're okay. Hmm, you know, those could be signs. And to get them to open up, I think it's by building trust, you know, and um, by being there, building trust. Yeah, that's what has helped. Miriam, you've touched on the important needs for children and how to care for them as a parent. How do you see that your past has informed who you are as a mother, how, how you mother your kids today? You have powerful questions, Rosie. <laughs> I'm genuinely interested. And I think mothers yeah, out there probably want to to know this too. How can they, how, basically, how can they be a better mother to their kids, right? Everybody wants mm-hmm. to know that. Yeah. So I have three daughters of seven, four and a half, one and a half. So <laughs> full of energy. <laughs> You're a busy mom. I'm a very busy mom. <laughs> um, it wasn't easy becoming a mom because all of a sudden I was confronted with What am I going to transmit to my kids from my past, from my own personal story? What 
am I going to, it was an obsession at one point, what am I going to teach my kids? And, um, and uh, I had uh, three pregnancies. Um, I was induced three times. And I think that's also linked to trauma because I so didn't trust my body to do the work that, you know, um, I wouldn't go into labor. My body never went naturally into labor. So each time it had to be through um, uh, induction, you know, medication and stuff. So three times, you know, and uh, yeah, and I had postpartum depression uh, three times too. Um, but what I would say is that um, in my obsession, because I, I'm, uh, I'm perfectionist, I'm a perfectionist. Uh, so I had this obsession of, giving to my children what I didn't have and but how but and I was lost but what I accept now that I'm working on not being that one uh, I don't have to be a perfect mother to be a good mother you know there's what they call good enough parenting Uh, we mess up we have slip-ups you know if I have an outburst I apologize you know sometimes I see that um I get I, I get triggered quickly. I take a break. Mommy goes to timeout too. Timeout is only <laughs> for, oh yeah. I'm an advocate for timeout for parents, you know. Take a minute, go to the room, breathe, you know, drink a tea, um, and then come back more refreshed and ready to 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 um engage with your children. So I also accept that what I want to teach my kids, I don't I don't know. There are things I want to, like, I want my kids to know how to regulate their emotions. First, to be able to recognize their emotions, because I think it's as important as academics these days for me. But I know I don't know how to do that. So what do I do? I reached out to um, um, to, to a public organism here. And uh, so there's this social worker. She's She comes to my home and she's teaching uh, my big daughter, how to regulate her emotions. And so like she, she, so I'm there too. I'm also learning, right? Because the skills are we, are we also like continue teaching them and we, we keep that framework because it's really good. And um, just a side note, this woman, she's also from Africa. And I saw how, how do I say it? It was, it's great to have someone who understands my context without me and, and she understands the reaction. She's a professional. She's a, she's a social worker. But there are many things that um, she could already pick on, you know. And so she's helping us. So I'm learning that. I'm also um, learning to manage my own emotions because I have many big emotions I haven't processed for years because I know that what is happening for me inside is not what is happening for my child. So even if I'm triggered by my child, I know that she's being a child. She's not there to trigger me. And so this, all this awareness, you know, and um, yeah, and letting them guide me. Um, they have three different characters. They're, their personalities are different. So I adapt to the way I see they want me to love them. And I love them in the language, in the way they would receive it as love, right? And uh like just being open like that and learning. And um, I also tap a lot into my intuition of how I feel about things. And uh, 
but it's good. It's like having um, the childhood I never had. Now I know all the Disney movies. I know everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I know the songs and everything. Yeah, so. oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I know the songs. Uh, Baby Shark. <laughs> yeah, tell me about Baby Shark. <laughs> I, I hear I, I'm not a mom, but a friend, lots of friends who are of kids are. I'm hearing about Baby Shark a lot. So. Yes, yes. So. Miriam, I'm so interested. The, the social worker then is is it? It's covered by healthcare. You don't have to pay for the social worker. No, I don't have to pay for the social worker. Um, it's just I would advocate for asking for help. That's one thing too with trauma on the effects. We don't ask for help Mm -hmm. because we think it's too much what we other people think. We think it's showing weakness or showing that we are not okay. It's uh, the worst thing that can happen. And uh, asking for help is important. It's just because I called, uh, because we live in Quebec, the 811 number. And I explained, oh, my, my child, she 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 has this anger outbursts. I don't know how to manage them. Um, can you help me? And uh, now we are learning skills. It's fun. The woman comes like we draw together, and then then we chat. She's really good. And um, yeah, so so I'm learning too, right? Because I know that's what I want to achieve, but I don't necessarily know the path to get there. And um, and. Even if you haven't been through trauma, even for other parents too, sometimes we know, oh, this is what I want to bring my kids and we don't know how to do it. We just ask for help. There's there's help out there um, to support us. Um, uh, I read books. I read a lot of books. I'm in groups on Facebook where I can ask questions or, you know, to get support from other moms. Um, Yeah. Miriam, I... I think it's really important to your point that the social worker being, hap- it happens to be she's from Africa, but that that makes a difference and it helps helps you, it helps her to understand your family. Um, coming, I'm coming from a Asian Chinese background. I've often asked myself, like, how much of what I see from my parents, how much do I think, is that cultural or is that personality? And is that a, you know, East versus West thing? Uh, and I'm sure it's some mix of all of it, but um, you, you already made the point that Cameroon is not one culture, Africa is not one culture. Do you think that there are cultural elements to how, uh, I mean, your abuse was abuse, right? That That's just wrong. But do you think there's also cultural elements of uh, the way people thought about raising you? Even the fact that they spanked you, like your grand, great-grandmother, she didn't abuse you, but she did spank you. And that's not so common here. How much of that is a factor? Um, yeah. Um there's what is culturally accepted, right, as uh, a norm in a place. And it's true, spanking kids is uh, is um, normal in Cameroon. And um, But um, these are things I think we live in an age where we can question these things. You know, we can question, we can read the research and say, okay, we've always done it like this. This is our culture. This is how we do it. We marry kids at 14. But... Is it beneficial? What kind of human beings do you um, do you create, do you send into the world? Do they live happy? Uh, do these things have consequences on them the rest of their lives? And we know that it's yes for every of those questions. So how do we as a people, that's where it will take bravery, it will take time. 
How do we as a people question something that is part of our culture and change it? Um, um, Candace, my co-host, used to say, culture is for the people. And when culture doesn't work for the people anymore, we have to change the culture. So um, I would say, yes, it could be part of our culture, but we live in this wonderful time where um, we can sit here. You're in Toronto. I'm here. Um, I mean, you can have a chat with anyone from around you, or we can question these things. Do we want this? Is this what we want to keep doing, knowing that it has consequences, right? Yeah. And it's, it takes a lot of bravery because sometimes, like now, if I come and I say this in my family, everybody will be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we, knew, we knew you were weird, but really, <laughs> you're becoming weirder by the day. <laughs> you see what I mean? Oh, so it's, it's, yeah. it's not easy. <laughs> yes. You, you know, that, and that hits on something important too, because then even in your own family, you can feel kind of outcast, right? Or you feel like you don't quite fit in. Yes. Um, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I really re- resonate with that. Uh, I, I don't really have, I was spanked as a kid. I'm not too bothered by that now. I'm actually more bothered by what I felt was a lack of encouragement, right? Mm-hmm. And just positive reinforcement. You can do it. Mm-hmm. And we're proud of you. Uh, you're a good kid, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. There's, um, in Chinese culture, there's a lot more humility, I think false humility um, and all well-intentioned, but it's also, I, I question how much of that is good child psychology, right? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a child needs a mirror, a mirror, the adults, the caregiver, you know, the, that primal attachment. Um, so it's it's very important in the way a child is built. And um, so even recognizing their emotions, feeling safe, it's we, the, like the caregiver, gives that to a child. Um, if we don't give that, um, they, we feel there's something wrong with us. We are not good enough. We do so many great things, but we don't feel them. It's not attached to us. We Other people see them. They're like, wow, you did this. And then we're like, yeah, well, you know, I will be that. Well, yeah, you know, everybody does that. So it's not, right. you know, mm-hmm. um, not accepting that actually, yeah, uh, Everybody might do it, but you did it and it counts, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Miriam, you've already given us so much and our, our English-speaking listeners, I think, will find this very enriching. I wonder, um, I've often thought about our French-speaking Canadians who I sadly can't um, offer as much to because my high school French is pretty bad. Um, but would you feel comfortable sharing a little bit in French to... Um, our French listeners, and maybe how, what you, a word of encouragement that you really want to leave for people, especially people who've been affected by trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, j'aimerais vous dire que um, quelque chose vous est arrivé et il n'y a rien de mauvais en vous. C'est quelque chose qui vous est arrivé sur plusieurs années. Qui, qui fait que vous vous sentez um, brisé. Mais sachez que si vous reconnaissez ce qui s'est passé, vous comprenez les effets que ça, ça a sur vous, vous pouvez commencer à guérir de ces blessures d'enfance. Tout n'est pas perdu. Et j'espère vraiment qu'en partageant ces histoires difficiles, vous allez vous sentir moins seul, vous allez vous sentir euh, 
qu'il y a quelqu'un d'autre là-dehors qui vous comprend. Parce que pendant des années, j'ai pensé que j'étais seule dans mon histoire. J'étais seule dans mon esprit. Je me dis, je suis, je suis quelqu'un de brisé. Personne ne me comprendrait. Personne ne me comprendrait. C'est ce que je me disais. Mais en fait, nous sommes beaucoup là-dehors à porter ces histoires difficiles. Il faut juste oser en parler. Oser briser le silence. Oser se mettre de, dehors. Oser dire à un ami, un proche, un parent, un professeur, oser en parler, en fait. C'est le début de la guérison, de la liberté. Voilà. Merci. Merci beaucoup, Myriam. <rire> Merci, Rosie. Bits and pieces of that. <laughs> uh, Myriam, I treasure you. I'm so thankful and grateful that you uh, were able to come on Of this podcast today on Changing Lenses, you definitely lifted some blinders from my eyes and showed me showed me some of the a different way of looking at trauma um, and a different way even of thinking about parents and kids and how that affects us as adults. So thank you so much. You were you were a blessing. You're such a blessing to us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um... You said this was a safe space and it feels like that. So thank you. Oh, that's, that's the best thing I could hear. And I just wanted, I, I can imagine there'd be lots of questions or, you know, people wanting to follow up or even get some support from you um, because that is what you do now. You offer support to people. Uh, I know you have a website um, and that's where people can probably go to first uh, to find out more and, and how they can engage with you. We're going to, uh, for you who's listening, we are going to have all of the links up on our show notes. So uh, don't worry if you can't catch it all right now. Uh, but Miriam's web website is miriamjoku.com. So that's Miriam, M-I-R-I-A-M-N-J-O-K-U.com. And Miriam, I know you're also on all of the socials. What's the best social to reach you on right now? Um, Instagram. Yeah, Instagram. Underscore Miriam Joku. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. And also LinkedIn. So. Okay. Great. Yes. LinkedIn and Twitter as well, right? Yes. 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 Yeah. Oh, everything. We can, we can yeah. reach you in lots of different ways. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <most> definitely. <laughs> and well, I didn't say yeah. it, but laughter has helped. I've been a... I've laughed a lot in my mm. life. I laughed at myself, laughed at others, laughed at how people walk, the mannerism, <laughs> the way of talking. I've been <laughs> laughing, you know. It has helped. It has been very uh, healing. Yes. I, you know, <laughs> I see you as a person of laughter. Like when I met you at work, I mean, it's different. At work, we're all professionals. So no, we don't talk about personal things. But um, I, yeah, I just see you smiling all the time. You seem full of life, full of joy. And just goes to show that Whatever you've come from, there is healing, there is hope, um, and you're offering that healing and hope to other people. So amazing that you're able to give back out of your out of bad circumstances comes come good things, right? So yeah. thanks, mm -hmm. thank you, Rosie, thank you for your kind words. So we look forward to hearing you again in part two. Um, and to our listeners, we hope that you will join us for the next session because we are going to talk more about um, how the past can also affect us at work and some of the discrimination and exclusion we feel in the workplace. So don't, uh, don't miss that episode that will be coming up next. Thanks for joining us. I hope we helped to change your lens and expand your worldview. 
This episode was produced and hosted by me, with associate production by William Liu, and post-production by Q9. Until next time, I'm Rosie Young, your guide to changing lenses.